0: this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group talks to Mark Anthony Kay of Project Gemini. Hi, and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands, album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this bonus episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Ken Gregory and Paul Zotter as we welcome Mark Anthony Kay of Project Gemini to talk about the upcoming release in the year 3073, book two. Back to the show, my friend. It is always it a so pleasure long. to talk to you, and especially <laughs> exciting on the eve of a, uh, of a of a release, a project Gemini release. I, I'm I'm thrilled. Yeah,
1: I'm very excited about it. Um, it's been one of these records that has gone surprisingly smooth uh, as far as ideas, recording, uh, and of course. You know it, it had to go really smoothly, and then I knew right when it was getting really, really smooth that there had to be a wrench in there somewhere, and the wrench occurred during mastering. But I'll get to that when we start talking about this.
0: <laughs> well, there's this guy called Murphy, he gets in everybody's business, you know. Yeah, so uh, yeah, it seems like just yesterday we were talking to you and Joe about Dark Monarchy, and and boom, here you are with with uh, in the year 3073 book two already, and I, I just it seems really quick. So I'm guessing that the, as you mentioned, the process went really, really well. And I guess we're gearing up at this point for, um, basically, we're supporting the, the the pre-sale, right? That starts in on November 1st or 2nd? Do I have that right?
1: Yeah, you have it right. Uh, the CD pre-sale, the pre-order will be starting November 1st. Perfect. Uh, the actual digital version of the album comes out on the 7th I believe 6th or 7th whatever whatever the whatever the saturday is you okay. have
2: the 7th written on the on okay. the info yeah
1: there you go i
2: know it was going smoothly because you know i follow you on facebook and like there one day the picture of the grid of all the songs and all the things you need to record and like before you know it you're showing pictures and i'm like motherfucker that thing's almost filled up he moves <laughs> so damn fast how does he do that shit so fast I swear, like it was just right after the Dark Monarchy came out, and then you had the special um, single release on Record Store Day, and then it was like boom—you know, here you are. So I, I'm curious to know how, when did it all start coming together, Mark? And um, in between the last release, the Dark Monarchy, and everything else that you've been you've been working on.
1: Well, um, the thing is, when I'm doing records i kind of try to plan out things i know that you know plans never seem to work properly when you do it that way i'm going to strategically plan this you know two months from now i'm going to start this and then three weeks after that i'm going to do this and then you know it never works out completely the way you want it to but um when we finished the dark monarchy as far as writing it recording it and starting mixing it uh i started getting the itch to start writing the next project gemini stuff Uh, Because once I got to the point of where I was going to be mastering it, uh, because Joe insisted that I mix and master it, even though he's fully capable of doing it himself as well, because he does all his own albums like that as well. So um, once I got to mastering, that is not really something that stresses me out too much, so I can write during that time too. And as I mentioned to Joe uh, when I talked to him not long ago, I found it interesting because I hadn't written Project Gemini stuff for a little bit at that point. And as per usual, when you look at my folders, because I have like these little folders in my computer for each record, there's usually about 15 or 16 songs in there of which, you know, six or seven are used for it. And the reason why that is, and, and Joe had a good laugh about this when I told him, is that the first nine or 10 of them really suck, you know? <laughs> and then the, after I start getting rolling... With the writing, then I started realizing, okay, now this is pretty good, and then this is pretty, and then I, I have to do that. Like I have to start writing and writing and writing and writing, and then once I start getting an idea and a vibe of where I wanted to go, then it's then it's smooth sailing from there. And this time, you know, I I had a I had a good idea of what I wanted to do because I knew this is going to be a three-story, you know, concept, and just like with most movies that I love, that are trilogies, whether it's Lord of the Rings or you know, the original Star Wars or stuff like that, the middle one is always the sort of odd turn and dark thing, you know, the the bad guys win in this one and Mm -hmm. stuff like that, right? So I kind of wanted to take it down that path because I know I had had harped quite strongly about the first record being very positive. You know, I didn't want to go down that negative path, right? I wanted to keep it very, very upbeat. And, you know, for the most part, it was because it came back the planet was all paradise and everything was going good. And then of course they stumbled upon that filing cabinet and that apartment building where all the deadly deeds were done and they got gassed and knocked out. And that's how the rec- record ended. And then of course now, you know, depending on how closely you go through the lyrics at this point, I think it might be difficult unless you have the lyrics at hand to f- follow what exactly happens, but you know, things are afoot for these guys now, you know? So, uh, that's how I kind of approached it. I wanted it to be a little bit more, not as positive. I don't know if that's the right term, but yeah, I didn't want it to be so you know, uppity, and I wanted it to be a little bit more, uh, epic in some spots. I mean, the last two songs, well, the last two main songs, are like you know nine and eleven minutes long. Yeah. Right? yeah.
0: I, I I'm glad you brought up the story angle because as I was listening to the, you know, a- a advanced copy that you sort of provided us a- and I was like, wait, I specifically remember him saying the last time that he wanted that story to be very, very positive. And this is, you know, there's a there's a lot of st- you know shenanigans going on here so i was going to bring that up anyway but um so it this is the this is the empire strikes back of the trilogy where everything is dark and gloomy and there's bad stuff about so i'm with you now that's very cool
1: yeah because i mean for example the one song in there uh the back streets of paradise mm-hmm. is basically um a song about you know you, you have that the, the room where they're kept right, Those, right. the commander and them and then there's girls in there kind of you know cleaning up and stuff and they're kind of looking at her like, who is this woman, you know? And she kind of can't talk to them because she'll get in crap if she talks to them, right? And then she kind of, like, lets it be known that, you know, she got captured by these sacred sons. And, you know, now she's working for them. And th- th- it's her kind of backstory, you know what I mean? Like, what happened with her, right? And so these are, that's how I kind of tried to map out these songs. Like, now I want people to realize, like, it's not all peaches and cream on Earth, you know? Things that happened... And while they still believe that it was for the best reason, because if you look outside and you're not involved with these people and you're not captured, everyday life is fantastic. They're yeah. women in those pools and everyone's hanging out and having a great time. But, you know, it comes at a price. You know, you keep your nose out of trouble and you don't start looking around and asking too many questions. Everything's good. But when you start looking around and noticing something may not be kosher and you start approaching it and asking it, Here come the sacred sons. That's kind of how I laid out the story.
2: Yeah, I I concur. Last weekend, when uh, you you sent these along, Mark, I was in the hotel uh, at at a hockey tournament with my uh, son, Mm -hmm. and it was in the evening, and I downloaded it, and I unzipped it, and I uh, shared it with the gents here, and I uh, started listening to it. And my my immediate reaction was, okay, we've gone into some dark places here, which was very, very cool. I I very very into it. Um uh and, and speaking of those and I'm just gonna start asking questions, Joe. So if uh, if you had something else in mind, just you know no, feel go free for to it. coming out. So there's there's a few things that I that I want to talk about. The one thing that I want to talk about about and I'm sorry to geek out so soon, but I, I feel like in, there is there's a much broader soundscape on this album maybe than than in book one and i love it and um and i feel like there's a wider range of guitar tones happening um through this and it was funny because this morning i started watching one of your videos about you you know your mixing of the guitars Mm -hmm. and um and i kind of had it on my phone playing next to my laptop as i started my work day and then and then work kicked in and and um And I I didn't quite get a chance to fix it. But I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about the guitar tones you use, the guitars you use, what, you know, what tones you're going for in amps and and whatnot.
1: Well, the big thing that changed this time from the first book was that I I had incorporated my Hughes & Kettner 5-watt tube amp. Before, I was using strictly line 6 stuff only. And I was pretty happy with it. But this time, I started, you know, bringing in the tube amp i have my 412 marshall cabinet in the other room you know i nice. mic'd it up mic'd it up and i started doing things like grabbing my you know echoplex preamp pedal
3: ah you know, very nice
1: and started you know f- pushing the front end a bit on the tube amp right you know and i started bringing in some of the more you know i wouldn't say old school because lots of people use amps when they record but you know i was not going down that route for a long time because i was pretty happy with the sounds i was getting with the line six but i decided i wanted to take a chance and experiment a bit with the sounds and i think it kind of paid off because this time i combined the two sounds and if you watch that video i kind of cut them up and show how just the amp is and then how the uh, line six is and then how it is together and it definitely has a more broader spectrum of frequencies it doesn't get buried as easy i find now i can place the guitars pretty much anywhere in the mix and you'll hear them whereas before i was kind of like Ooh, you know i have to sometimes kind of you know pull out some more bass or add some more mid-range you know so i think that that really worked out well um, also i wanted to make sure that the drums were you know the way i wanted them and more importantly i think what really uh, added to all this was having the guest bass players mm. in this. Because yeah. all of them had radically
0: different bass sounds. Very interesting segue there. Do we want to jump right in to the guest Hell bass yeah. players? Or, Paul, do you have Absolutely. more geeking to do?
2: No, I can continue geeking on bass tones and bass players. That's fine.
0: So, you know, as um, I, I guess we shouldn't be surprised with that, uh, that Joe Bailey shows up. Um, playing bass, he sings obviously some of his, you know, parts if you will um, yeah. but then you also have other guest bass players including David Donnelly or Donnelly, I'm sorry um, Lee Pomeroy Wow and Billy Sherwood <laughs> Wow, wow So That's, a, that's quite a list <laughs> Should we talk yeah. about that? <laughs> well, what do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> How it happened? How we you know? Well, let's put it this way: How, how did it happen, um, and how did it go? I mean, I, I okay. think I think you maybe we talked off offline um, last time we spoke about Lee Pomeroy, I think, but I, I don't think that was on the on the record.
1: No, it wasn't. Um, but here's the, here's how it went. Joe, obviously, I know Joe for a long time now, and Joe was a great bass player. I really loved the way he plays bass. So getting him out, it was a no brainer. Uh, he plays on two songs on the record he plays on uh, mastermind and he plays on the great lie. And I think he did a great job on those. Uh, I especially loved that he pulled out his fretless bass finally on mastermind in that mm. middle section where it drops down to the kind of acoustic oh, yes. guitar bit there. And, uh, I think he did a really, really good job in his singing. I-, I can't stress enough how much I love the singing that he did on here. And I mean, if you watch the interview that he did on that video, he even said himself that he thought that he had much more room to shine this time because I didn't, it's not like I told him he had to do something strictly in it, but this time he kind of took more of a chance that, you know what, I'm going to listen to what he, you know, his examples, and I'm just going to do it my way. And I was like overjoyed with that, right? That he did it that way. So that was great. Then David Donnelly, I've known him for a while too. Um, He has such a pedigree, you know, behind him, this guy, I mean, he's played with, you know, um, um, yeah, Woody Woodmansey, who played on the Spiders from Mars. He's played with him because he was in the band uh, Holy Holy. That's it. Uh, it was like an ultimate, not tribute, but it was like a kind of a tribute to Bowie and his stuff. But anyways, he's done a lot of stuff. He works with Tony Visconti and stuff like that. So, uh, and he's done some great stuff. He was with Glenn Matlock's band. So he's been around the block more than once, and he's done a lot of great things. So when I gave him, you know, Backstreets of Paradise to do, I was very happy with what he gave me back because his bass playing was just really thundering in that i mean in the verse parts he had some really nice melodic lines in there and then when it needed to kick butt he really knew how to do that very well so i was very happy with that um then lee pomeroy um when i asked him to do it what i did with him which was interesting is i gave him a couple of songs and i said lee you pick the one that you want to do and right away he messaged me back he says you know, mate, I really like this uh, second song, which was uh, Sacred Sons. And then he messaged me back. He goes, what kind of bass do you want me to use? I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, I have all kinds of different basses. What kind of sound were you you looking for? And I go, do you have a Rickenbacker? He goes, of course I do. Okay, so (laughs) bam, done deal. So what's great, and you'll get more detail on this because I do have an interview with him done that's going to be on one of the upcoming update videos. Uh, He talks about how, you know, he used... Uh, a couple of different plugins that he tried. He has a he has a uh, you know an, an amp in the room as well that he tried playing through and stuff like that. And and it really turned out fantastic. And he said one of the things that he found interesting was that he used one of his ARW Chris Squire sort of settings for this song, right? So nice. that's why when I listened to it back, I was like, that's why it, it re- kind of that sound. It 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 was familiar to me because it had that kind of growl to it and had that upper. Nice frequencies to it that kind of reminded me of how he approached chris squire stuff because i mean he didn't want to go for a dead attempt at a you know exact sound right he wanted like his you know the pomeroy version of a chris squire sound right and i think he did a great job i mean his playing was one of the ones where i had to really you know shape my guitar around it because his sound was so immense that when i put just the drums and the bass on it was like wow this is like already sounding really full mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you know and then i had to place the keyboards in there i had to place mine and joe vocals in there and guitar solos i was like whoa how am i going to do this and then i just of course went back to my thinking of the diagram of the pie you know settle this in here put the guitars here put here and look at it think of everything as frequencies bass sits here guitar sits here and then as i did that it all came into shape and it was very very stunning I thought because I was so happy with it that's why I immediately said this is going to be the first single like no questions Mm -hmm. asked when I heard it and then uh, the interesting thing was working with Billy Sherwood because when I messaged with him he said "Uh, what do you want me to do and I go I want you to do an instrumental track for me he goes okay because actually I'm very excited about that because you know he likes doing instrumental stuff because it, it doesn't force him to think about vocals and you know not to get too busy here and there and he sent me probably one of the most interesting set of tracks word uh, because he sent me a mono bass track obviously with his spe- I think I'm pretty sure he used a specter bass it has that exact sound that I know specter basses have but he also sent me a stereo file of this really like affected almost like Tormato Chris Squire Chorus bass sound that was like whoa, and when I put it, when I faded up, I'm like this sounds really wacky in headphones because it was in stereo, and when you place that mono one in between it, it has like this huge 3D effect on it, I'm like this sounds really cool. When he does all this little like do 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 bass lines in there,
2: yeah,
1: it was just like the chorusing effect on it was just like making my head go around in circles. Like wow, this is really really good. So I literally had to go back and redo some of the lines so that I would let his playing. Be more of the spotlight in it i didn't want to have my guitar over you know top of him squashing what he was doing that's why it turned out the way it did because i kind of backed off a bit in spots and you know doubled a few spots or you know backed off like when i did a little kind of funky thing in there before there was something a lot more in there but i wanted it out of there because he does all those lines in there and i wanted that to stand out right so it certainly does
0: yeah. I, you know and, and, and I can I, I'll, I'll relate a very short story here as I was listening mm-hmm. to this so when you know there's been a bunch of other stuff going on but when I got around to to actually listening to this I, I just downloaded the files onto my computer and I was I was playing them while I was doing a little bit of work I hadn't looked at any of the notes, I, I hadn't remembered that Billy Sherwood was was on this or anything else. And I, I listened to the album, you know, and I was just I was kind of jamming on everything and I thought it was great. And and this track came on and literally I just stopped and I turned and I'm like, what is going on here? It, it was beautiful, it was fantastic, but it was very, very unexpected. And when I pulled up the uh the notes that you had provided, I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah. I did it sans notes, but I had a, a very similar experience. And then I, I texted the group. Joe answered, Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah could, well, because it, it, was, it, it wasn't it, long after Spectre I'd had my experience like the, that you chimed in. So I'm like, Yeah, there you go.
3: The specter sounds like the strings and the pickups are like 10 inches apart. There's like so much growl and room and space in there. It's like, it's, it, it's bizarre just how much i don't know oscillation or space i hear in that sound
1: yeah uh, that's one of the things i love about those is that it it has that distinctive growl to it that is unmistakably spectre and the reason why i was so familiar with that is because in my old band my old bass player had a spectre bass endorsement deal so he had like a five string spectre and you know know, a whole bunch of them so i was very used to that sound you know so i I was very pleased needless to say with the the uh Guest bass players' uh, parts. And what I'm also happy to say, too, is I just finished talking to Billy online, and uh, he's going to be doing his interview next week with cool. me. So there'll be an interview with him as well nice. on the update to talk about his uh, thoughts on the song. And, you know, and of course, I'll probably try to, like, you know, album a little bit about news, although he's told me we can't talk too much about, you know, yes stuff, right? So I'm like, okay, no problem. But I'll, I'll try <laughs> still. All right, sure. You know.
3: Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. well, I, I have to commend you for the direction that your videos are taking. You've actually gone straight for the geeky stuff, like we are in this interview. We <laughs> <laughs> so seeing you do the clinic, basically, where you bring up your your DAW and you show us the live tracks and you show us the line six tracks for the guitar and combine them is just a real treat for me. And I'm assuming your audience is getting more and more technical all the time and i say go for it that that's that i think you've arrived at your kind of um, geeky medium
1: yeah i think that you're right uh, honestly because i've been noticing of late that my numbers have slowly been increasing as far as subscribers too i mean for the longest time i was sitting down at like you know like 160 and all of a sudden i checked today and i'm like up to 187 so it's starting to climb up and you know it like I said, I've never been one that's been hunting for 10,000 subscribers or anything like that. I'm happy with having my kind of clique of people there that I kind of know and, you know, people that, I, that are loyal and that keep coming back and keep ordering stuff. And, you know, if I have these amount of people, then I know what to expect. Right. But, you know, hey, I'm not going to complain if I get to like, you know, 300 or 500 subscribers. That's fine. You know, but I, I don't want to, you know stray from what i feel comfortable with doing and i really enjoy doing these kind of you know deep dives where i go in and you know like next week i'm probably going to do the keyboards show you know the different settings that i used why i used them you know what what this keyboard sound did what i what i was looking what was i looking for it to do you know because a lot of the times um i approach keyboards totally differently on this record than i did on the prior ones before i just went Said so I'm gonna do keyboards today and I start playing. If I used one keyboard, two keyboards, you know, it would just matter on my mood for the day. But what I decided to do this record was I'm gonna say, okay, I'm gonna spend a whole week doing keyboards for two days. So, or as long as it takes me to get through all seven songs, I'm gonna use just this EX7. Then I'm gonna set up my Gaia and go through all seven songs again with just that keyboard. And then I'm going to go through, again, all seven sounds with my Novation bass station, which is just like a little mini Moog kind of keyboard that does a lot of, like, low-end sub stuff, right? And it really, really helped. Like, all those sounds that I got in the middle of, like, you know, Getaway and stuff like that, that little part in the middle with those sounds, I never would have stumbled upon those if I had just, you know, said I'm just going to do keyboards over a couple days and just, you know, sit on the one keyboard pretty much. Because then I didn't have as many options sound-wise. And I was so glad I did that. Because the tones turned out better. I used a lot more you know, low-end stuff to support the bass as well. So I think overall the Sonics on this record are much better than they were on the prior record.
2: Yeah, I, I think that comes through loud and clear, Mark. Like on um, The Great Lie, I think is the track that mm-hmm. starts with that sort of... Um, Eighth yeah. note re- repetitive um keyboard, right? Yeah. That yeah. that's a very, very cool thing. And it and it kind of moves into this the verse with these wonderful keyboard textures behind like a clean guitar
3: yeah. with
2: with the verse. So I, I, I think that rings really through. And actually, um I actually jotted a note down on that song and 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 i mean all of this in the most flattering way so I, so hopefully you know it's okay that i'm saying these bands we can cut it out if you are but i was like it it felt like it was a terrific combination of metallica meets marillion um mm. that that song uh yeah just with the textures and then the keyboard lines that were happening and i and i have a little bit of marillion on the brain cuz we've been talking about um misplaced childhood and and um clutching at straws as of late um but but I think that that for me as I listened to this, I really felt like this was a broader sonic landscape for Project Gemini o- o- overall, and I really dig it.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's interesting that you mentioned those bands because uh, Marillion, I've been kind of getting back into a lot. I mean, and I think it had a little bit to do with you guys because I know you guys have been mentioning and talking about those things too, and uh, you know. I went right back. I went, I bought myself a British twelve-inch of a Market Square Heroes just nice. recently. Right? <laughs> nice. You know, and I went right back to the beginning. I got you know script for a Jester's Tears. I bought a you know oh, I wow. think I bought a U.S. press of that. But I you know I'm going right back, and I I have like the you know the special edition Clutching at Straws. I got the you know the remixed version of a uh, Misplaced Childhood. So I've been really going in the fish mode for a little bit now. Uh, Although I am more of a Hogarth appreciator, to be honest with you. (laughs) But um, I I don't mind some of the fish stuff. I mean, I think that uh, it is very Genesis-influenced. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, because I'm very influenced as well by Genesis. I'm influenced by Rush. I'm influenced by Yes. You know, I'm influenced by a lot of progressive stuff. And sometimes it shows, and sometimes it doesn't, right? I mean, lots of people say whenever I play my music they say oh i hear this i hear that i hear dream theater i hear rush i hear like so many people have told me late, lately that they said when i listen to book one i think of some stuff from moving pictures i don't hear it but you know everybody hears things differently you know what it is that reminds them of that i i don't know but you know i'm, I'm up to five albums now so people a lot of them are starting to buy all of them so what they're hearing on those records that's the thing I love about this kind of thing is that what I think it sounds like is going to be different to what Paul thinks or what Ken thinks or what Joe's going to think of the record, you know, or maybe those three might think it's the same thing. Right. But everybody has a different opinion on this kind of stuff. And that's what makes music fantastic. I think.
3: Hey, Mark, the drums are the elephant in the room. We've talked about <laughs> your line six. We've talked about you're using Kettner. We've talked about guest bass players. Now it's time for drums. I think in between Dark Monarchy and Book Two, you've improved your drum technique, and I'd
1: like to know what that is. Well, two things actually are the main reasons I think why this is improved. Uh, number one is I bought myself a few more MIDI packs for the Easy Drummer Two, um, and one of them, surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, depending on you know how familiar you guys are with the genre, but I picked up a few fusion drum stuff nice stuff in there um you know i'm i'm right into that whole kind of you know manavishnu orchestra and those kind of things as well and you know they have some fantastic drumming in that and that's one of the things that kind of stood out to me as i I was always thinking if i wanted to make it to sound more it's not to be flashy but something more stylized fusion is not a bad way to go down that route you know what i mean and what I find with the fusion kind of drumming is that it's less about going nuts on the toms and stuff like that, but it's more about being tasteful on hi-hats and, you know, kind of your, you know, a little bit more tastier snare drum bits in there, like a little bit of these fancier kind of snare rolls and stuff like that. And instead of going over, like, you know, Alan Neil per like, across, like, every single tom, they seem to like using, like, you know, one rack tom, maybe two floor toms. That's about the extent of their kit, right? And it, it seemed to have worked. And plus, the other thing that I did that really helped as well is that there's an option in the Easy Drummer where you can put in your own drum beat if you're trying to find a specific sort of pattern. And what I started finding was I was getting better and better at making my own beats on this. And a few times, believe it or not, I actually took my made one and used it instead of using an actual one from a pack. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's where I started going, okay, hang on, something's going on here because the only time where I would not use it is if there was a really good pattern that had some more ghost noting in there, like when you use the snare, right? Uh, because that's a little difficult to program. And these are all d- done. The MIDI stuff is all done by real drummers, right? They're mm-hmm. actually performed, Triggered. right? Yeah. So, I, I like using those ones because there's some fantastic drummers under. I mean, John Tempesta, the guy who is on a lot of the ones that I use, he's just a brilliant drummer. So, you know, what better guy to have on your record than, you know, somebody who does that kind of drumming, right? So I think that's one of the things that really helped. And uh, I I also think that the, the drum sets themselves have improved with each coming uh, pack that comes out. Like now they just released one that Eddie Kramer did where he went in and recreated a bunch of drum set sounds that he did over the years. He does, there's a Bonham kit. There's a, uh, there's a, what's his name from the who? Keith, Moon. uh, Keith Moon. Yeah. He, he did a Keith Moon kit. He did a, uh, Charlie Watt kit. So he does a, he has a bunch of kits that they, you know, recreated in the studio, set up like those kind of exact drum kits. And they, and they're really, fantastic like there's even one now that has like huge like 50 inch gongs that you can sample Mm. timpani drums a la you know bonzo right and stuff like that too right so those things are really improving and you know they're using you know they're recording them in really top-notch studios so the sounds are amazing as they are right so there's little that you have to do extra as far as mixing them goes and that's that's what makes it easier because if you don't have to sit there and spend. Five and six hours trying to get a good drum sound, that's half the battle. One, you can spend all that energy on getting good guitar sounds and hmm. keyboard sounds and stuff like that. So, I think the drums have improved marketably because of that. I am, um, you might want to talk
2: to them about Tune Track, about a little bit of an endorsement because I think you may have just sold <laughs> a couple extra packs uh, <laughs> from Easy Drummer.
1: I was just going to say though, I did write them actually once, just an all funny story here. Uh, I did write them once because. I was at that point, they hadn't released many progressive packs. And now yeah. they have started putting them out now more, right? Metal progressive and then just, you know, classic progressive and stuff like that. Uh, but I wrote them and I said, you guys would do yourselves a huge favor if you contacted, let's say, Mike Portnoy, or if you contacted, you know, I thought of like a whole bunch of drummers Marco from like Miniman. this. Yeah, Marco Miniman. Or uh, uh, there's a few other guys that I I mentioned just
3: gavin harrison
1: yeah, gavin harrison and i said get these guys in and you know get them to play on -hmm. some of the midi stuff and the other thing is sample some of these classic kits now with the passing of neil peart you would probably sell bucket loads if you did a recreation of a neil peart moving pictures kit that Mm -hmm. somebody can get you know what i mean Uh, that alone i think would probably bring somebody in like right away to buy these things if you can get like a Recreation of everything, including those little high drums that, you know, was opened back, yeah. concert toms and stuff like that. I feel like our friends at IK
2: Multimedia may already have um, beat Easy Drummer to the Punch on, uh, on that one. But speaking of Neil Peart, um, I did notice in the getaway... Mm-hmm. There is a, a sort of a keyboard solo section with a lot of like wood blocks ah. going on that brought me back to Sir uh, to Kings and some uh, orchestra chimes. I didn't know if that mm-hmm. was a sort of a little tip of the hat
1: or if that was just part of something that you were trying to do. That is a double, a good year, a good year, by the way. Uh, but that is a double thing there because obviously, like most people in the music world, you know, I was very disappointed and upset with Neil Peart's passing, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, you know, he's been a big, huge influence on me, and I'm not even a drummer, so that's got to tell you something. And also because a lot of the times when I've, I've noticed that people have messaged me and whenever I've asked them, you know, well, what, what what kind of records do you like of mine? Like, what are your favorite records? A lot of people always go back and say they like Ordinary Day. They like Ordinary Day, mm-hmm. Right. And I was thinking to myself, what did I do differently in that? Well, that's some of the things I did there. I had like those in an ordinary day, the song. I had like those wood blocks and stuff like that right off the top of the first song, right. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was wise to maybe bring that back. And I'll tell you, that was one of a little bit of uh, of of a hairy thing, but uh, so fun to do was those bells, those tubular bell parts in there, because I had to literally go in on the uh, the SPD eight pad system that i have here and (laughs) tune each drum uh, each bell to the note that i was wanting there so i had to like hit it record it go and retune the bell hit (laughs) it again for the next part and you know it was a little bit time consuming but the end result i thought was fantastic i think it really gave it a little bit more of a grandiose feel in that section because of that
2: yeah for sure yeah wow
3: I'd like to read some uh, titles from the Toontrack site. <laughs> okay. Just to prove your point. Mike. Death Metal ESX, Dream Pop ESX, Drum Kit from Hell ESX, Drums of Destruction ESX. Um, uh Yeah, the same thing happened with IK Multimedia when I was looking for guitar sounds. Everything wanted to be blood and guts, death and destruction. And it's hard to find something with that kind of pristine bit of class that you might look for with a a proggy
1: edge. Yeah, Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Because I definitely go and check these things thoroughly when I go through the site there. And sometimes I just buy them not because they're death metal or whatever, but because I like the sound of the drums, how they record them. Because when you go and do your own, you know, playing and performances and pick different MIDI performances, it's a totally different thing. They don't, all of a sudden they don't sound so death metally. They actually sound like just really nicely recorded drums with you know some nice drum patterns on it, right? Because I don't, I, I'm not all about blast beats and stuff like that, right? But you know, hey, people are out there that want it. It's good that it's there, but they are getting better with that, so you know i'm I'm pretty happy that they're starting to come down yeah. that path I liked mm. i I enjoyed the
2: progressive pack because once once I downloaded the progressive pack i could I could start finding things in odd time signatures. It was like mm. yes, all of a sudden, thank yeah. you five eight is available, seven eight is available, and it just made it so much easier than trying to take you know, other time signatures and edit them to, so it's, uh, they're coming a long way. It is getting easier and easier, that easy drummer.
1: (laughs) Yes, that is, that's a good thing. So, So, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, Joe, go ahead.
0: No, you go. No, 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 you go. You're the host. I was going to say, so, so Mark, at the the top of the the episode here, you had made uh, an, an oblique reference to Murphy showing up during the mastering process what's going on there <laughs> or okay, what went
1: well, on ba- well basically when i was recording everything everything was going really smoothly like all my ideas were as, as far as like you know let me try using the amp now with this okay that went good let me try using the three different keyboards spending time with each and okay that went good you know let me try doing vocals earlier this time usually i would do the vocals almost near the end of everything when i was recording leave it for the end. No. Let me do it now when there's very little on there. Only drums, bass, and one set of rhythm guitars. Then I did my vocals. That turned out really good. And this, I did the same thing when I sent it to Joe. He's like, wow, we don't have very much here. Just guitar, bass, and drums. I go, yeah, let's let's try it. See how it goes. And he did a great job. Um, then it came time to mix. And the mixing went really well. I remember re- putting this in one of my updates. that I, One of those lengthy ones I put on Facebook. Uh, saying that because I had focused so hard on getting the sounds I wanted right off the bat before I started recording that those sounds that were committed were so good that it wasn't a matter anymore of like EQing things to death and compressing them. It was just a matter of level setting now and a little bit of compression here and there, you know, and that's why the mixes went really, really nicely and quickly. Then I got to the part where I thought it was going to be the easiest. Let's go to mastering now. So, And I started doing the mastering and my holy place to make the final okay for a song is in my car Mm -hmm. that stereo is always my reference point if it sounds good in here it's going to sound good everywhere so I was putting in the mixes in there and one of the first ones I put in there was in the in the dark that simple guitar thing with this just my kind of lower singing part and at first I listened to it I'm like whoa this sounds really like woo in my face too much it sounds too harsh what the hell's going on here let me listen to sacred sons okay that sounds better but it sounded really like like overly large it sounded like too much it was it was like sound was trying to like squish itself out of the speakers like it was everybody was trying to get out all at once you know like the speaker was gonna bust like this sounds it almost sounds like when people were bitching about Metallica's Death Magnetic record, how it was like, you know, totally limited to death. And same with like, uh, what was that rush record again? Vapor Trails. Vapor Trails. Yeah. That one was given the big thumbs down because it was really, really mastered terribly that record. And I was getting a little bit of that kind of vibe. I was like, wow, why does it sound so, you know, hard to listen to? Like, I imagined if I was to put headphones on, listen to this record, the way it was, I would get ear fatigue halfway through the record. I said something is wrong here. What the hell is going on? And then I remembered my good friend George Graves, mastering engineer extraordinaire who works at the Lacquer Channel. Now retired, you know. Hopefully he's enjoying his you know retirement. Uh, he mastered the Canadian pressing of feral the King's Hemispheres, Permanent Waves, uh, Peter Gabriel one, a whole bunch of records. And he did one of my last EPs with my old band. And I remember sitting with him. This is where I got all this great information from. He he told me once he goes, Mark, sometimes less is more. And I remember remember him saying that because I was was looking at what he was doing once to one of our songs. And I was like, hmm, he's not doing a hell of a lot to this, but how come it sounds so good? You know, because I was expecting, he's going to put tape saturation. He's going to put this and that. He's going to put one of these big compression things on there and stuff like that. But no, he didn't really do too much. And it sounded fantastic. And then it that's where it just totally hit me. My mastering before I had like, you know, EQ compressor, another kind of, you know, sculpting EQ and another sort of, you know, like an SSL compressor. Then I would have like a tape like analog tape simulator, and then I would have like the, the limiter and like it was it was a lot of stuff on some of the prior records, for whatever reason, and it worked that way. But it wasn't working on this. So basically, and I and I always find myself very surprised when I say this. All it needed for this record and every single song was the same thing. It just needed one EQ, one compressor, and a limiter, and that was it. It didn't need anything else. It didn't need any kind of analog tape simulation. It didn't need any kind of you know specialty compressors. It was just three things, and that was it. And as soon as that happened, I put it in the car and I listened to it all over again. All of a sudden, in the dark, had a nice feel to it. It was nice and subtle. I could hear the the water droplets nicely at the beginning and stuff. And it was it was more enjoyable of a listen. Overall, and I I swear I almost had a tear in my eye.
0: Outstanding. Nice. I'm also glad that you brought up the the water droplets and stuff because, you know, as, as we on the Palaver have, you know, just as far as anyone else is concerned, just finished up our Pink Floyd segment. And we spent so much time talking about you know the way they use sound design and sound effects and and sort of creating additional ambiance and and texture with that and and you know again maybe because we've been talking on on our show so much about this sort of thing as you know in in the very beginning i thought ooh look marks doing yeah. some of this stuff too <laughs> and you know again it just it it adds a lot of of texture that i thought was was very well done so
1: yeah, I mean, I, I I like that kind of stuff, too. I mean, you know, I've always been about, you know, those kind of records, like 2112, like Discovery, where he's in the cave there, and you hear the running water in the cave there and stuff like that. You know, if you're going to tell a story, you have to try to make the story easy for people to follow, you know, and if you, those kind of things kind of help, like setting the setting the scene, for for example, for uh, the Back Streets of Paradise, that kind of, you know, thunders, rain. All the people screaming in the background, you know, you can you can almost envision, the, you know, those sacred sun guys coming and starting to gather the people they thought were no good doers, and taking them away, and that's kind of the things that I wanted to add into that, right? So you know, I'm I've always been a fan of that, and I but I just didn't want to overdo it too much with that stuff.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's a fine line and I think you you know, you applied it certainly judiciously here and I think it, it works very well. So
1: Yeah. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. You know, and the reason why I also didn't want to overdo it too much on this record is because I have a feeling that to, in conclusion of the story in book three, there might need to be a little bit more of that kind of stuff in there to help kind of Clear up and resolve the story. Mm.
0: Interesting segue. Go ahead. Oh, yes. I'll step back. Go ahead. (laughs) Oh,
3: wow. I've been sitting on this now for an hour. (laughs) So, Mark, yes. We got to talk about this artwork here. Mm. Uh, I may not be the number one sci fi fan, but I'm picking up on some pretty intense visuals and You've got a vehicle here, a very interesting kind of a filter, if you will. So, in the year 3073, book one, it's rather pastoral, uh, very bright greens. Uh, The water has wonderful shades of blue and white. Uh, The sky, the the weather would be rather moderate, if not damn beautiful. And it's just a very pleasant place to be just like the music and lyrics itself. Now you hit the darker cues in book two in the album cover and remind me of your artist's name again. James McCarthy, doing a fantastic work yet again, uh, James McCarthy combines um, two concepts that we do have the pastoral images of the previous book one, And yet when you look past this one tree off to the right, it becomes a dark orangey purple filter, almost like we're seeing the hidden underbelly of the planet. So please elaborate on what I'm seeing
1: here. Now, here's the thing. Whenever I do the covers, I always tell James that he has free reign to do whatever he wants. For it, so a lot of it is made up from his imagination. Now the thing is, though, I had to of course specify with him what was happening in the story, otherwise he would just draw anything, right? So I basically told him that in this part of the story, a lot of the uh, hidden secrets of the planet start coming up in discussion, like this mastermind, you know, which is basically a group of people that are sedated. In these sort of like, you know, tanks where they sleep permanently and their mind power together is used to function things for the planet, satellites in orbit, you know, certain things that help keep the planet sustained. They look at it like, you know, it's a great honor that these people were chosen to do it. Meanwhile, their families are horrified that they never get to see their family and friends again. When I mentioned these kind of things happening in the story, he immediately kind of took it like, you know, how do I kind of represent this kind of dark, seedy, as you put it, part of the planet, you know, without making it too obvious. And I think he did a good job in showing that. Like, you know, I I had an ad earlier made where it just said things are not always what they appear right that was just like my little ad that i had up and that's exactly what he kind of symbolized in there you know like when they first landed on this planet they thought wow this is absolutely incredible like nothing bad happened on this planet we left it probably maybe too early they turned everything around but no they did turn it around but you know it wasn't all peaches and cream like i said a lot of things happened and a lot of things are still happening that they have to do in their eyes, to keep things running the way they think it should be running. And that is kind of, I think, the representation of the picture, the kind of like yin and yang. You know, Mm -hmm. those people on the one side are having a great time, but if they knew at what cost they're having this sort of fantastic life, would they be so happy in living it?
3: It's just a fantastic image, wonderful color choice. It and, 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 and immediately drew me in to the uh, secretive, mysterious nature of this part of the planet.
1: Oh, oh yeah. Because in part three, it's going to really come to a halt. Because the
2: last line, I believe, is, others know we're here. Uh-huh. Yes. Which is kind yes. of a cliffhanger in the current version that I have on my phone. Yes. So I have just a couple more things that, that I want to. So I'm sure there's more. Um, but not having the lyrics, the, the one thing that I noticed in Master, um, in Mastermind, is that Mastermind? Yeah, that's the second to last track, right? Yeah. Um, that Joe Bailey playing um, the Earth, Earthling character says, towards the end, he says the goodbye, my friends, um, which is sort of a, a response from, I think, the Let Your Spirit Fly from mm-hmm. book one he says welcome home my friends right
3: mm-hmm. I,
2: I thought that was pretty pretty magical that that you uh you you put that you put that in there and um i'm and i'm curious to listen you know when this uh you know when i have time to like sort of listen to one and the other in in succession and and, and hear if there are any other gems but around joe bailey's performance you know you had mentioned that that he felt uh he had more room to shine. It definitely sounds like, you know, the familiarity of working together through book one, through the dark dark monarchy, and now this is 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 really feeling good. Um, but but I have to say that I feel like, and I think I I heard you mention this um, when we talked before about the dark monarchy. But I I really feel like the the vocals across the board. Um, are also elevated, and there's more of a dreamy kind of feel to them. So, I just I, last thing I wanted to ask about was your approach to the vocals uh with Joe, with yourself, how you how you put it together, the way you mixed it, and and all of that.
1: Well, the one thing that I noticed is that as I've gotten, you know, into doing more albums under Project Gemini, the first two records, I my my goal as a vocalist then was. Just make sure you have some decent melodies and it's in tune. You know, if I can get away with that being not a normal singer, uh, I would be happy. Man of Science, Man of Dreams, I kind of thought to myself, you know, I can probably start trying to get a little bit more adventurous. And, you know, now that I kind of have an idea of how I sing and what my positives and negatives are. Then when I did book one, I had Joe involved. And that was when I first kind of met him. And when I heard what he was bringing back to me, that immediately kind of forced me to say, okay, now, hang on now. I can't just kind of do what I was doing before. I have to kind of make myself on a sort of level playing field with him, which I still don't think I am, but I'm getting there, you Mm -hmm. know? And the thing is that I'm starting to approach my voice now more like an instrument and less just like, you know, filling in words now. So I'm trying to, like, for example, in the dark, in the dark, that opening song, I purposefully sung it much lower voiced and I remembered a lot of these techniques that I learned when I was younger doing these co-op things at studios you know when you do low voice turn up the mic gain really high up get as close up to it as possible because you can lower your voice and make it sound full and those kind of techniques really helped in doing that also I started working on adding a bit of vibrato to the end of some of my phrases which I never did before and now that I started getting understanding how that works at least in my voice it really started to help where I could you know sing a line and if I was holding a note and I felt I was going to maybe get a bit flat the vibrato really helps take that away mm-hmm. you know what I mean nice. so it it's just more focusing on what my strength is and what my weakness is and you know having and I can't stress this enough. Having a really good microphone for vocals, like I have this warm audio uh, 47 junior mic, which is supposed to be a mimic of a U, U47 nice. mic, right? And uh, it really helped, because you could hear every little you know breath and this and that and every little you know swallow or whatever that you do. It, it's very detailed, right? Whereas a microphone like this, like the SM7, I use this or in the dark because I found it it was better for that kind of, you know, close proximity stuff, right? right? So it was just, a lot of it, honestly, guys, was about going back in through my notes and remembering things I learned when I was in the studio, being like a little, you know, assistant engineer guy and remembering those tricks that I learned and putting them to use on this. And you know what? Things I learned 25, 30 years ago are still relevant today and a lot of people will say that you know things that engineers were doing back when you know people like the doors and now we're making records are just still the kind of techniques that people use nowadays you know
0: nice I, I love having these conversations with you mark because it seems to me like you're you have managed to retain most of every bit of of advice, information, or, or whatever that has ever been passed on to you, or or spoken about in front of you, and it's really cool the way that you can kind of go back into your file and say, "All right, I need to be able to do this. What do I? What have I learned about that?" I think that's really cool.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really helpful because you know, when when you really love doing something like this, I mean, I'm sure that you guys can, you know you know, attest to that too, because I mean, you guys are all also mu- very musical as well. You know, I mean, Paul just put out a fantastic record. I was enjoying listening to and I listened to that four part uh, thing that you guys did on your Palaver site there too. And I really enjoyed listening to that. I thought it was very insightful and I thought it was really well done. So my hats off to you guys for that. That was really, really well done. Thank you. And, and, and you know, it's when you, when you're that keen and not interested in that, you know, driven to make music, you'll remember these kind of things. Like I, I, like I tell a lot of people, I can't remember, you know, certain things last that happened last week, but I can remember, <laughs> you know, you know, things about, you know, loading tape on a two inch tape machine, or I can remember, you know, how to properly clean the tape machine, or I can remember how to, you know, fire up a patch bay properly, how to, you know what I mean? Like there's so many things that people would mostly probably say, well, what kind of, why is that important information? Well, when you're doing this stuff, all this stuff is important information, you know, like also, you know, living through the, you know, the volume wars with the mastering, how everybody wanted to have the loudest album and how it ended up being the most terrible thing that ever happened to audio. You know, and remembering what people did before that, you know, that they set the levels lower. They gave themselves, you know, at least, you know, five, six dB of headroom to master so that they can add a few things and stuff without having it hitting zero all the time. You know what I mean? And if you don't have a good memory for that, or if you don't have like books that you can refer to. That can be difficult, but you know, we're lucky also that we have YouTube because a lot of these things are on there that you can refer to as well, right? But, you know, I love making records. I love writing songs and my brain is probably, you know, 50 or 60% all recording stuff, you know, 20%, you know, day-to-day things that I need to remember to do, like, you know, you know, wash my face and, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, it's just, my brain is mainly divided up into music stuff. And I love reading about music. I love reading about, you know, other bands. I have lots of biographies and I have lots of DVDs. I have, you know, probably every single, you know, uh, making of DVD that came out when they did those things on much music, you know, the making of Phil Collins, you know, face value and all these things. I I love those things because when they go into the studio and show you their little tricks that they do, that's the stuff that I eat up.
0: Wonderful. I have one more question. Obviously, at the top of the episode, we mentioned the pre-order date for the the CD. How, how long do we have to wait for the vinyl version and what color are we going to choose? Which is actually <laughs> oh. two questions, but... <laughs> yes, but I don't mind. Um, <laughs> I didn't think you would.
1: <laughs> well, Well, here's the thing. I've been asked this already. You wouldn't be, you'd be surprised how many times I've been asked this already since I've announced, you know, the CD is going to come out. Everyone's like, that's fantastic. I can't wait. But when is the vinyl coming? Out? And I was like, okay, well, as I mentioned in the video, and I think I mentioned it in the interview with Joe that I did, there is going to be a vinyl and I'm very lucky because as you guys know about that monstrous fire that happened in California, in that factory that completely got burnt down that has that did all the acetates, the lacquer acetates, there's a lot of places that are running low and may not even have them.
3: Mm. So
1: you'll be seeing a lot of repressing of records and maybe not so many new albums on vinyl because of that. Mm. But I was lucky because my buddy, Mr. Ken Park at Lacquer Channel, remembered when I mes- messaged him, he goes, Mark, I remember that you said that you're going to be making a couple more records. I have held a few acetates for you so that you can do your album so i was like thank wow, god nice if you didn't do that you know who knows what'll happen I, you might have to go the direct ma- the direct metal mastering route which is another option that people have that they want to make vinyl right or what'll happen and i've had to experience this a little bit i'm not going to complain about it because i understand where it's coming from But, you know, it may come to a point where bands are going to say, I need to get a lacquer acetate done. And the studio goes, okay, no problem. Instead of the usual $375 we charged you last time to do it, it's now going to cost you $950 to do it. Why? Because we only have about 15 of these left. And we either want to save them for really big artists or people who are willing to pay a lot of money for them now. Right? Mm. So that is a possibility that could happen, right? And I've said it before. Somebody out there who has money, a lot of money, you know, one of these guys who are, like, retired from the music business or something, you want to make a lot of money, open up a new factory that does this. Because I guarantee you, you'll have orders hand over fist coming for these lacquer acetates. Because there's only one company that does it, and it's a teeny teeny company in Japan run by two people. (laughs) Okay? So they ain't making a whole ton of them for people to buy. So the vinyl will be coming out in the new year. I was going to maybe do it in December, but I thought that December is a terrible time to release something because people are buying Christmas stuff and blah, blah, blah. blah. So I figured I would start the pre-order maybe late January when after people have kind of, you know, gotten over Christmas and kind of cleared up a bit of their credit card bills. And then, you know, they can think about, getting a record from me. Cool. Uh, the color <laughs> hasn't been decided yet. I haven't put up my traditional poll for people to vote on what color because the the last one, the yellow on book one, was voted by the people.
0: Well, hmm. I mean, see, it's funny having having this conversation with you and hearing about, hmm. you know, all this stuff. It It almost makes me want to get on Facebook more than twice a year, but, you know, <laughs> almost. <laughs> I knew... You know, going in with that question that your vinyl releases are always, you know, several months after the uh, after the CD. I just wanted to sort of talk about it and get it on the record, so to speak.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I mean, it is on my list of things to do. I mean, right now, you know, I'm preparing for this. I'm also finishing up my 2020 Christmas EP that comes out every year. I always make my Project Gemini Christmas EP. I'm about done that now. I've just finished working on a song this evening before I got on with you guys. Uh, and then in November for Black Friday, we're going to be doing a lathe cut release of the Dark Monarchy album. So there will Ooh. be a version of that available Ooh. for your turntable. Uh, Exciting. Nice. And people love it. The lathe cut things that I've put out, I've had about three people say that they were able to put it up against their mofi and they said it was just as good. So I'm really happy with that that it has that good an audio fidelity quality to this, this mm. stuff. So people were really loving it. And then, you know, in January, me and Joe start writing dark monarchy too. Whoa. So there's a wow. lot of stuff coming up. So, and, and by the way, Joe's record is coming out as well in January. He has a new solo record coming out. Cool. So lots cats. of things happening. That's a lot. Yeah.
2: Things never stop.
0: No, no.
1: That's
0: Apparently fantastic. Not. So, any other questions for for Mark here before we close this out, gentlemen?
3: I finally thought of the perfect fusion drummer for you. If he ever uh, makes an expansion pack, um, I, I saw him with Stephen Wilson and I saw him with Steve Hackett. Do you know who of which I speak? Uh, Craig Blundell.
1: Oh, uh, yes. Mr. Blundell, yes.
3: He, he's a fusion guy, but he hits harder than the typical fusion guy. Yes so. he's a very very good yeah that's that, yeah. that, that if or, or, you know when, when you go wild and, and, and you reach all of the bass players you want to guest and you start veering into drummers may, may, maybe you'll be uh, lucky enough to get in touch with Craig
1: well you know that's one thing if somebody actually messaged me to go, you know mark you you've, been, you've gotten the bass players now and stuff like that you have the vocalist. Have you ever thought of doing a record with all? drummers like performing drummers on your record. I was like, Ooh. that would be something I would maybe consider doing. I mean, there's a couple of people who I know do those things. Like Pat Mastelano from King Crimson does wow. that kind of thing where you can contact him and he'll do stuff like that. Uh I even heard Gavin Harrison does that too if you contact him. He'll play on your track if you send him stuff. Wow. Right? So Maybe it might happen, (laughs) depending on how the wallet is and how much they want for this kind of stuff. Yeah, right, right, right. It depends because if you send them, yeah, I got this great song for you. It's 20 minutes long and I have another song for you that's like 17 minutes. They're probably like, okay, send me over like $11,000 and I'll, no problem.
0: (laughs) 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 So, Mark, thank you so much for your time here this evening in, in sort of, you know, walking us through this this exciting new release. So again, for listeners who are, are eager to get their hands on this, we're talking about In the Year 3073, Book 2 by Project Gemini. The pre-order CD release begins on November 1st. The uh, release for the digital version is November 7th, and stay tuned for release information uh in the very first part of next year regarding the vinyl. And Mark, where can people go to purchase this?
1: I usually put up a post in my Facebook, but if you want to be safe about it, the best place to go to is my Bandcamp page, the Project Gemini Bandcamp. I usually always put up a uh, pre-order there. And uh sometimes I also put up one just where people can directly Contact me. I'll put up my, you know, my PayPal information on there, and if people want to order directly from me, they can. Because sometimes I, I offer these extra little things like handwritten lyrics. Uh, I offer like an executive producer spot in the credit if you want to be one of those people. Oh, cool. And uh, you know, it's things like that. And I have like a disc of alternate mixes and stuff like that. And those things are kind of popular, believe it or not, when I do these pre-orders. So, uh, so, but the band camp is usually your your safest bet
0: excellent outstanding so anything else at this point gentlemen no it's great stuff mark
1: loving it and thank you for uh joining us and looking
2: forward to uh what comes next
1: and before i let you guys go i have to say something i want to personally thank all three of you for doing this because these kind of things immensely help in the release of a record and I love being on your guys' show, whether it's talking about Pink Floyd or Steve Howe and, you know, how he should, you know, quit, yes, <laughs> or, you know, whether it's all those other kind of things. You know, I always enjoy talking with you guys, and I really, really, really appreciate you guys doing this for me. Thank you, guys.
0: It, it's it, it's our pleasure, and we hope that, uh, that this release does really, really well. I think, uh, you know, I... I can't recommend it enough myself i've i've been very much enjoying um being able to listen to it a little bit early so so good luck can't wait for it to come out i'm i'm itching for the uh the vinyl and mark i am sure we'll be talking to you and probably joe bailey in the future yes you will As always, we encourage our listeners to, uh, to go out and check out Project Gemini's work. And if you have any thoughts or comments, feedback or questions about that, you're welcome to reach out to us. You can reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. We are at Prague Pala on all of those or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. So our email address is progpala at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and a whole bunch of other places where you generally find your podcasts. And we are, as ho- always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening.